In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Porchorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedom men, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, these men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And now, if you'll turn with me to chapter 8, uh, 7, verse 51. Uh, This is Stephen. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Uh, Dear Lord, I just thank you for Mike and um, the work he does for you. I just pray as he brings us the word now that um, 
yeah, you'd speak through him and that you'd open our hearts and ears to hear what he has, what you have to say through Mike. Uh, in your name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the, um, uh, the things that has stood out to me, it's okay, I can read. No, that's fine. I, I can read, believe it or not. Praise God. <laughs> A miracle. As I've been reading about Stephen over the last couple of weeks, I've been particularly challenged um, to consider in my own life, and I have a challenge for all of us when I ask the question, what will we, will we be remembered for? I wonder what words people would use to describe you and I. What legacy of any might we leave behind? Stephen's life was a short one, yet it's characterised by a radical impact that he had not only those around him, but also on those who would follow after him. While he couldn't have known this at the time, the actions of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7 would lead to a dramatic shift in the evangelism of the fledgling, fledgling church. To some degree or another, I think we would all like to think that our lives counted for something. That we might leave something behind to be remembered by. For some people, it's notoriety or an inheritance to bequeath. Perhaps it's children who might remember us after we're gone, at least for, for a period of time. Perhaps there's a feat in the record books that we'd like our names to be attributed to so that once we're gone, people will still be talking about us. Charities bear the names of generous benefactors whose names live on long after they're gone. And in the sports realm, there are record holders whose names are lauded for their incredible feats long after they leave the sporting field. But we come to Stephen. With what you know of Stephen, with what Nat read this, uh, this evening, how, how do we define him? What would you call him? What words would best describe Stephen? We might say, well, he's brave. He's courageous. He's an evangelist. He's a miracle worker. He's a powerful preacher. We might say he's forgiving. We might say that he's one who knew the scriptures well. We would say he's a martyr first recorded martyr in the early church and all of these things are at least in part true but what stands out to me the most as I continue to read through the two chapters that Stephen uh, is mentioned in the book of Acts what stands out to me first and foremost is his willingness to serve he was a servant of Jesus and he didn't care where that led that's our first uh, uh, greeting of, of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. The widows, there's a group of widows and they're being neglected. The apostles come together and they realise we can only do so much. So as a church, select seven men of good repute who will be able to serve in this way. And Stephen's one of those men. In fact, probably the leader of that bunch. He was, his name's recorded first and it was common practice it's certainly in the New Testament, um, 
where there's a list of names, the leader would often be the first one mentioned. Remember the apostles, um, Peter, James and John, and then we will continue to read about the rest. Whatever service Jesus calls us to, a servant heart is vital to any ministry. This servant heart sees Stephen becoming a key instrument of change in God's hands as the church crosses the bridge between being localised in Jerusalem and extending to the world beyond. So we read on in Acts chapter 7, and I would encourage you to do so in your own time. I, I understand that it was a tricky enough passage that Nat got to read, and I thought it was a bit much to expect him to, to read the whole of Acts chapter 7. But in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen's record of the testimony of what happened during the, a concise history of the nation of Israel and their relationship to God uh, in the scriptures. God inspired Stephen to speak boldly, rightly accusing Israel of their failure to recognize Jesus, their Messiah, rejecting him and murdering him, as they had done with many other prophets and faithful men through previous generations. Stephen's speech is an indictment against Israel and its failure as the chosen people of God, a people that had been given the law and the promise of the Messiah that was to come. In this speech, Stephen reminded them of their faithful patriarch, Abraham, and how God had led him from a pagan land into the land of Israel, where he made a covenant with him. He spoke of the journey of his people through Joseph's sojourn in Egypt to their deliverance by Moses some 400 years later. He brought to mind how Moses had met God in the wilderness of Midian in a burning bush and he explained how God had empowered Moses to lead his people from idolatry and slavery to freedom and times of refreshing in the promised land. Throughout his speech, he repeatedly reminded them of their continued rebellion and idolatry all of this in spite of the mighty works that God had done works that their ancestors were eyewitnesses to he accuses them with their own history now as we might understand this only infuriates the the crowd even more and it comes as no surprise that when he mentions these accusations they were not well received by the Jews And we know what transpired. Nate read about it for us this morning, uh, this evening. They gnashed their teeth, they dragged him outside the city and he was stoned to death. Now read in isolation, it's tempting as we read that to form an opinion that perhaps if Stephen's message was more conciliatory, not quite so blunt or direct, perhaps if he was more of a politician in the way he answered in the way he responded. He might still be alive to continue his message and have an even greater influence in the years to come. Perhaps if he hadn't been so blunt, he would still be alive and he had many years of preaching the gospel. Yet when we learn what this speech and his subsequent death led to, it's clear that here was a man who by the Spirit's power became an instrument of change in the early church almost certainly beyond what he would have ever thought or imagined. You see, his testimony and subsequent martyrdom led to the church expanding its horizons. He was a forerunner of those who would spread the gospel to the Gentile world. 
And it's of no coincidence that none other than Paul, who was Saul, is present at this time. That read to us at the start of Acts chapter 8. He was there. In fact, it appears that this account led to Saul, who would later become Paul, becoming particularly zealous in his endeavours to destroy Christianity. And it's, it's clear from the biblical narrative that we're drawn to see that the mantle of Stephen falls, surprisingly to the reader, on Saul, one of the church's bitter enemies. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that these words that Stephen had said played havoc with Paul as he went about what he thought was his service to Yahweh. Stephen is a notable personality. He was essential in God's plan for world evangelism. It was his martyrdom, as I said, that launched the church into the world. He is also a graphic testimony that it's not the length of a person's life that establishes their importance and influence. Uh, when I was first converted as an 18-year-old, I went along to a little church and there was a, a little girl um, that started attending that church. Um, we were trying to remember the exact background. I think it was through CRE in schools. This little girl had heard about Jesus in the classroom and she said to her mum and dad, can I go to church to hear more about Jesus? So little Chrissy comes along to church and she's converted. Goes along to Sunday school. Through Chrissy's testimony, uh, her family become Christians also. Her parents, uh, her grandmother uh, become Christians. Now Chrissy uh, was a little girl that had a terminal illness um, that she fought valiantly. Uh, but around the age of 10 years of age, she was called to be with Jesus. Uh, Chrissy wasn't old enough to be a theologian. She wasn't mature enough to be a leader in the church, as it were. Yet the impact that she made on the lives of everyone that attended that, that fellowship was great. And even though it's over 30 years ago, I still remember her. In fact, the length of a person's life has sometimes very little to do with the impact that they have. Stephen's ministry was extremely short. Remember, this is all new. They're all new Christians in the church. Some weeks, probably no more than months old in the timeline of the early church. Well, as we look more closely at Stephen's story, if all that I mentioned earlier is true, if he's brave, if he's courageous, if he's a good teacher, then what's in it for us? If we were simply following someone's actions, then I could just say, go and study the word of God harder. Be more forgiving. Be brave and send you out the door. Surely there's more to it than that. If what we see from the outside is not all we can discover about Stephen's life, what then are we to learn from him? Things that might help us to leave a legacy of real significance. That might be used to impact the lives of others. Yes, even to grow God's kingdom. Well, there are four crucial Christian hallmarks that Stephen um, 
characterizers that, that Nat read to us. We're told in various places in Acts chapter 6 verses 5, 8 and Acts chapter 7 verses 55 that Stephen was full of faith, he's full of the Spirit, he's full of grace and he's full of power. No mystic search is required, no second blessing needs to be unearthed, no deeper revelation needs to be found to unlock that we might live as Stephen did. The goal for the Christian is not to be a great preacher or an evangelist or to be super brave as such. These are byproducts of what's transpiring inside, of what's going on in the inner man. Each of these four things Stephen was full of are part of each and every Christian experience. Here is a man full of everything that every believer has access to. That word full is key to understanding Stephen the man. To say someone is filled with something is to say they're controlled by it. We say people are filled with anger. Some people, we say, are just evil to the core. We might say people are filled with jealousy or envy or lust. What does it mean when we say someone is full of themselves? I mean, we, all, we all get what that means. Self is the most important thing. They're not too concerned about anyone else. Or it might be on the positive side. We see people who are full of joy or happiness. I don't know, maybe there's some West Coast supporters around at the moment that are full of joy and happiness. Or we might say people are full of peace or patience. To be full of these things, good or bad, means that they occupy our thinking. They determine the decisions that we make in life. And ultimately, to be full of these things will shape who we are and how people remember us. So as we quickly consider these four attributes common to all Christians, let's have in the back of our minds what it might look like in your circumstances to be full of, to be controlled by these things. Firstly, we're told, and it has to come first, firstly, we're told Stephen is controlled by faith. I sometimes think there's a fundamental problem with our understanding of the word faith in in this culture that we live in. Because sometimes when we hear the word faith, it conjures up something that is possible but may be hopeful. I have faith something's going to happen. I'm hoping it's going to happen, but it might not. The Bible uses faith in the context of what is certainly true. Stephen's faith in Jesus Christ was based on a certainty of life that has experienced the change that only relationship with Jesus brings. We're told without faith it is impossible to please God. Stephen's faith in the veracity of God's word, in the certainty of faith in Christ, was unshakable. He was full of faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we're told also that Stephen was full of the Spirit. God's indwelling spirit is the seal, the affirmation that God will complete what is yet started in us. God's spirit continues to guide, to correct, to grow and sustain us throughout all our lives. 
This is a man who was so assured in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to care for him, to comfort him, to strengthen him, to grow him, to bring him into a glorious end before the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has complete confidence in his direction in life. We're told also that Stephen was full of grace. It's grace that relieves us from the guilt of sin because the Christian is no longer under law, but under grace. It is first and foremost a recognition that God in Christ Jesus pardons us. But there's a richness in the Christian who is able to grasp the wonder of grace in their own lives. We are free, no granted the right to approach God with confidence. Guilt no longer assails us. Understanding grace as a Christian is to reject self-confidence and rely on Jesus who alone declares us righteous. It's to acknowledge that we are in his hands. Our works are for his glory, not in order for us to somehow attain worth in his eyes. It's abiding in his finished work and recognizing that without a work of God's grace, how can anyone be expected to truly walk a right path? It's that which enables you and I, God's children, to forgive the wrong others will do for honor to us because we realize that but for the grace of our mighty God, we too might be walking the same path. It's that, it's being full of grace that enables Stephen to say, don't hold this against, against them. As this angry mob picks up stones and murders him. Full of faith, full of the spirit, full of grace, full of power. God does not save us and leave us to our own devices. Praise God. He instead empowers the believer to accomplish the work he calls him to do. Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or expect, according to the power of his might at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. You see, the point is whether we perform the wonders that Stephen did or whether we're able to say no to temptation or perhaps accomplish something else that God has asked us to do. We recognize it for what it is. We do it in and through the strength of Jesus Christ. It is in his power that we accomplish our service, our ministry for him. Stephen's secret was the completeness, the fullness with which he lived the Christian life, a life that everyone, every child of God is called to live. So to sum up, Stephen was first and foremost a servant. Now I understand that's not the most exciting concept to, um, to hear. But Stephen was first and foremost a servant. Any other leadership in whatever form it may take falls short of God's ideal. And can I tell you that if you are, have a leadership role, whether it's inside or outside the church, 
servant leadership is the only way that you will find people willingly wanting to follow for the right reasons. I, I, I have the privilege of, um, of working closely with the pastors and other elders and it's tremendously humbling to me to sit in many meetings and witness the servant hearts of these individuals. They have taught me a lot about what it means to be a servant. Stephen was first and foremost a servant. You know what's striking as we read here? Stephen did everything right and yet he ended up dead. What happened? Why didn't God rescue him? God could have. You know, the truth is, in all honesty, we don't always know why God allows his people to suffer. But we do know that the sermons we preach in our pain are very often louder than the ones we preach in our prosperity. Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God came through his martyrdom. It may be that God's will for your life isn't one that takes us from blessing to blessing. You know, sometimes we look on and some people just, oh man, it just seems at least on the surface that they just, God seems to bless them and bless them and things seem to go well. Maybe that's where God wants to lead you. But maybe not. But in the end, we will, like Stephen, look up to heaven and see Jesus standing in affirmation. Jesus will welcome us into glory. Only when we know that Jesus stands before us in love and victory at the right hand of God will we have the power to endure the scorn of the world. And though earth may reject us, we can endure knowing that heaven awaits. How do we determine success? What are the signs we look for in others or indeed how do we judge ourselves when it comes to determining whether we're successful or others are successful in life? I think as a general rule, most of us judge people based on three factors. What they look like, what they do or what they say. What they look like, firstly. Most of the key figures on our television screens, in the movies, um, or those who are famous for being celebrities, whatever that means, are successful because of what they look like. There's not that many, I guess, ugly people on our screens. And these people may well be self-absorbed. They may lack any life skills or intelligence. They may be insecure or shallow, but they accomplish what they do because of how they look in the eyes of the general public. We often judge people by what they look like. But we also judge people by what they do. I think sports stars and the very wealthy fall into this, this category. Sportsmen and women are lauded for their success in the sporting arena. We marvel at their skill sets, their athletic prowess, and the ease with which they seem to achieve what they do. Some of you will know that I'm a runner, or uh, calling myself a runner is a bit of a stretch. Probably if you saw me run, you would say, well, you're a plotter at best. And that would probably be more accurate. One of the things I noticed about a week and a half ago is that the marathon world record was just broken. The record for the marathon is now set at two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds. Now, for someone who tries to run, I can tell you that's a staggering figure. The marathon is 42.2 kilometres long. Now, I, I, I did a bit of math during the week, 
And I came to realize that what that equates to is being able to run each and every kilometre at 20 k's an hour. Now, you may not know what that means, but what I suggest you do, if you're interested, is measure out a k and run it as hard as you can and see how, how quickly you can go. And then consider how you would be able to do that for kilometre after kilometre after kilometre for 42 k's. Or to look at it from another perspective, it means that on average, these runners are running each k in less than three minutes. Try running a k for in less than three minutes and then consider doing it 42 times on the trot without stopping. These, I admire these athletes for being able to do what they do. The wealthy are also remembered for what they do. Are they philanthropic? What is their wealth spent on? Most of us know Bill Gates. We've heard of Bill Gates and many of us will be aware that Bill Gates has publicly stated that the bulk of his wealth will go to charities when he dies. His kids will be provided for, but the bulk of his enormous wealth is going to go to charities. I've, I've <coughs> um, had an interesting um, uh, I look at the two wealthiest men in the world over the last couple of years. There's Bill Gates and there's another guy who owns Ikea. I'm not exactly sure what he's called, so I just call him Mr. Ikea. Well, Mr. Ikea and Bill Gates, kind of in terms of personal wealth, they have a bit of a competition. Um, one month, someone's richer than the other, or it, it might sway back and forwards. What stands out to me about Mr. Ikea is that even to this day, with all his wealth, he still buys his clothes at local op shops. To me, that's um, staggering. Uh, I don't know why you would be bothered, but what people do often governs our opinion of them. But also what they say governs our opinion of them. There are famous speeches that come to mind from the annals of history. Winston Churchill inspired his countrymen through the darkest hours of World War II. In fact, it's been said without Winston Churchill's leadership, without his inspiring speeches, uh, England may well have gone under. J.F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. All men created equal. More recent times, Donald Trump came to power with what slogan? Can anyone say? Anyone remember? Let's make America great again. And then we understand this can work both ways because sometimes we judge people too quickly in the negative. Someone says something hurtful, perhaps without thinking, out of frustration, without even realising that our words have caused offence. We understand the tongue's a powerful implement. And you, might, you may quite rightly argue, well, sometimes there's no other way to size someone up than to consider what they do, what they say, even what they look like. And up to a point, you're probably right, but the example of Stephen gives us some insight into another way. Can I encourage us all not to seek what the world would consider to be important? These things are only temporary, shallow pursuits at best, and they will ultimately lead us unsatisfied. Stephen's life points to the Christian being a contradiction to the world. 
as the Christian seeks to bring about change from the inside out. It's what's going on here that eventually will come out, that will have an impact for the kingdom. So as I mentioned at the start, what will you be remembered by? What legacy might we leave behind? The way of the world or the way of Jesus? Full of faith, full of God's spirit, full of grace, full of power. The words of Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 could have been written about the life of Stephen, but they apply to every Christian. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Stephen understood that his life stood for more than the temporal success of the world's values. Ultimately, regardless of how long we live, it's what we do in the here and now, today, that may well determine our eternity. As Shibu mentioned earlier, we just uh, want to encourage anyone that might be searching, anyone that's wondering what it means to be full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power, anyone that might be searching, please talk to someone. Stephen's life, and even more so his death, should be an example of how every believer should strive to live. Committed to the Lord, even in the face of rejection, faithful to preach the gospel boldly, knowledgeable of God's truth, willing to be used by God for his plan and purpose, full of unshakable faith, empowered by God's spirit, exhibiting grace in all our dealings, powerfully proclaiming the wonders of our Saviour. Let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you for the wonder of your word. Thank you for this uh, powerful testimony of your servant, Stephen. Thank you for uh, his ability to see you even in the darkest uh, period of his life where he faced imminent death. I pray that you would teach us what it means to be people in the world that will be shining lights for you, that we would be full of faith, full of God's spirit, full of grace, full of power as we seek to serve you first and foremost. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.